in order for a message to be truly expository, it must also be Christ-centered or gospel-centered. And I'm going to show you why. As David explained earlier, the point of expository preaching is to expose the meaning of the text. But listen, what is the meaning of the Bible? Is the Bible just a, a collection of stories that reveal random things about God? No, the Bible is something much better than that. The Bible itself tells a story. And the story it tells is the story of our fallenness and Jesus' work to redeem us. To put it simply, the Bible is a book about Jesus. Think about that. The Bible is a book about Jesus. Now, what does that mean then for the context of every passage in the Bible? Since the Bible is a book about Jesus, that means that in order to accurately and faithfully teach every individual passage in the Bible, we must show how each of those passages ultimately points to Jesus and the salvation that he brings. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 197. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and the voice that you just heard is that of Nick Cady. Nick, uh, with a little bit of help from Pilgrim Benham, gave this workshop recently in Colorado Springs, Colorado. So we put on a training event in Colorado just recently, and this is the recording of one of its key or core modules, Christ-centered preaching, uh, basically explaining the differences with two different ways of approaching the Bible and its message. First way is a man-centered way, saying the Bible is basically a story about you and what you should be doing, and then contrasting that with Christ-centered preaching, which is, this is a story about God's gracious redemption accomplished through Christ, and it's a book about what he has done. And Nick, with a little help from Pilgrim, is going to explain that and then give some very practical tips and methods as to how to incorporate that into your next time teaching the Bible. There is a highly interactive section towards the end when groups work through passages and then give little miniature presentations of what they've discovered. And I encourage you to listen to it, to hear this being worked out on the ground in real time. And as you listen, and as you think, man, I wish I could be in the room when this happens. Boy, have I got good news for you, <laughs> because our next training event is on the calendar, February 18th and 19th in Costa Mesa, California. We're gonna put on another one of these from Friday to Saturday, and we want you to come. We want you to come. We want you to bring the people who you're mentoring. We want you to think of potential new Bible teachers within your church or your community, and we want you to bring them. We want to encourage, equip, and inspire the next generation of Christ-centered Bible teachers. You can find more details on expositorscollective.com, but here you're able to listen in on a previous workshop, and of course, you're invited to join us on February 18th and 19th in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Okay, I'm going to get out of the way. Here is Christ-Centered Preaching. All right, everybody, I'm going to have Pilgrim Benham join me up on stage here. 
Now, here's what we're going to do. This Christ-centered preaching module is one of our core modules that we do here at Expositors Collective. And what we're going to do over our next period of time is Pilgrim and I are going to preach a message from the same passage. Now, maybe some of you have taught messages before, and you've taught a passage, and you've heard somebody else teach it, and they took a totally different angle on it. Well, here, it's not just so much going to be about the content of what we're teaching. What we want you to focus on is the different emphasis that we're going to have, the different emphases that we're going to have between Pilgrim's approach to it and my approach to it. And at the end, we're going to ask you some questions to see if you could pick out those uh, differences and emphases. So now, actually, probably not the best time for you to be uh, taking a break, but um, if you have to, you have to, okay? So uh, we just want you guys to go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, that's where we're going to be studying. So like I said, I'm going to preach a message on Jonah 4. Then Pilgrim's also going to preach a message on Jonah 4. And then we're going to ask you if you notice the difference of emphasis and and why it's important. All right, so Jonah chapter 4. You know, in some Jewish traditions, there's a practice in which the book of Jonah will be read aloud before the whole congregation. It's not a very long book, so they'll read the whole thing aloud. And then at the end, the congregation will collectively say out loud, they will say, we are Jonah. Now, the thing is, when they say we are Jonah, they're not patting themselves on the back. They're not giving themselves a compliment uh, because Jonah was not a very good role model. If you can think of a subtitle to give to the book of Jonah, if you were teaching a series, you could call your series Jonah, Don't Be That Guy. That's what I would call it. And that's the title of this message, Don't Be That Guy. Sometimes Jonah is referred to as the reluctant prophet. But in reality, we have to admit that Jonah wasn't so much a reluctant prophet as he was a rebellious prophet. God said, go here, and Jonah went there. He literally went in the exact opposite direction than where God told him to go. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, which was to the east of Israel. Jonah instead went to the western coast of Israel, and he hitched a ride on a boat that was headed to Tarshish, which is most likely in Spain, which in that time, they thought that was about as far west as you could possibly go without falling off the edge of the earth. So God said, go east. He went west, as far west as he could possibly go. So Jonah wasn't a reluctant prophet as much as he was a rebellious prophet. And here's the interesting thing. Jonah was already a prophet up until this point. This wasn't the first time that Jonah had been called to be a prophet. Before God calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, we read in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, that Jonah was a prominent prophet in the time of King Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom of Israel. So it wasn't so much that Jonah was reluctant to be a prophet. It was that Jonah was rebellious when it came to the specific calling from God to go to Nineveh. Now, maybe you know how the story played out. Jonah's on the boat headed to Tarshish. God causes a great storm to happen at sea. Jonah ends up getting thrown off the ship and God causes him to be swallowed by a great fish. That fish carries him back to the shores of Israel and barfs him up right on the shores. And so there Jonah is right back where he started with less money in his pocket and covered in fish barf. And friends, that is where rebellion against God will always lead you. It takes your money, It takes your time, it leaves you humiliated, and it leaves you covered in barf sometimes. So Jonah realizes that God is not going to let him run away from this calling, so he says, fine, 
I'll do it. And begrudgingly, he walks to Nineveh, all the way to Nineveh, begrudgingly, grumpily, and he walks right into the center of town. He walks right into the main square of the city of Nineveh, and he gives the most half-hearted, apathetic, unenthusiastic message he can possibly give. In the history of altar calls, he gives what is the worst altar call in the history of altar calls. Here's what he says. You guys have 40 days to repent, or God's going to just kill you all. Bye. Right? That was his altar call. Now, I've heard some bad sermons, but I think that's the worst sermon I've ever heard. But at least he was short, right? I mean, you got to give him credit for that. Well, anyway, he preaches a short but very bad sermon. But you need to know this. Jonah's sermon was intentionally bad because Jonah didn't actually want the people of Nineveh to repent. That's what's interesting. Because Jonah knew if the people of Nineveh repent, God will have mercy on them. But he doesn't want God to have mercy on them. Jonah wants the people of Nineveh to be judged by God and to die. But, of course, much to Jonah's chagrin, the people of Nineveh, they hear this terrible sermon, this world's worst altar call, and in spite of how bad the sermon was, they actually do repent of their sins. And here's what it says in the last verse of chapter 3. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now here in chapter four, Jonah chapter four, we're going to see Jonah's response. Look at what it says in verse one. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And for the rest of the chapter, there's this back and forth interaction and conversation that goes on between Jonah and God in which Jonah is angry and God is asking him, is it good for you to be angry? And then Jonah goes up on a hill overlooking the city of Nineveh. He builds a little shelter and he waits. He camps out and he waits. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for the end of that 40-day period and he's hoping that the Ninevites didn't actually truly repent and that he's going to have the pleasure of watching God just destroy them and kill them all. And so while Jonah is there, God decides to teach Jonah a little lesson. God causes a leafy plant to grow up over his shack and give him shade and relief from the heat. And then God kills the plant, right? How gangster is that? And Jonah gets angry again. And the book ends with God telling Jonah that his attitude is not good. So what was it about Jonah's attitude that was not good? Well, there are three things I want to show you about Jonah in this story, about which God would say, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. Okay. Number one, Jonah was prejudiced. Number two, Jonah was a whiner. And number three, Jonah was angry at God. In each of these cases, what we're going to see is that Jesus shows us a better way to be. Okay, let's go through this list. Jonah was prejudiced, first of all. See, Jonah was fine with being a prophet until God called him to go to Nineveh. Why? Because up until this point, the prophets of Israel had mostly been called to speak God's word to the people of Israel, not to foreign nations. So when Jonah signed up to be a prophet, he did so as an Israeli patriot. And for him, being a prophet was all about making Israel great again. So when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach his word to them, 
Jonah didn't want to go because he understood that this warning of judgment was also an offer of mercy if they repented. And Jonah didn't want them to repent. He didn't want them to receive mercy because Jonah, as a good Israeli patriot, hated the people of Nineveh and the people of Assyria. Remember, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and Assyria at this time was Israel's biggest rival in that region, both politically and militarily. Assyria was powerful, it was wealthy, and for years the Assyrians had been encroaching on Israel, trying to take their land and trying to bring Israel under their influence. Furthermore, Assyria had on some occasions attacked Israel militarily. Furthermore, whereas the Israelite culture was shaped by God and the Bible, the Assyrian culture was completely pagan, and it was infamous for its brutality and its depravity. Historians and archaeologists tell us that the Assyrians practiced human sacrifice and torture. They found furniture in Assyria made of human skin. They found ancient drawings where they would show people's eyes being gouged out and hooks being put through their faces to lead them around. There was nothing about Assyria that was worthy of respect. And so for all these reasons and more, Jonah hated the Assyrians to the point where he might have even said, if there are going to be Assyrians in heaven, then I'd rather go to hell. For sure, he would not have wanted to be part of a church that included Assyrian people. So the idea that the Assyrians might repent and, and worship the same God, that was something Jonah said, you know what, just kill me instead. To put it simply, Jonah was a racist. More than just being a patriot, Jonah was what we call nowadays a nationalist. In his attitudes, we see everything that is wrong with religious nationalism. Friends, the Bible does not teach racism nor nationalism. What the Bible teaches is that God created all people. God loves all people. And because God loves people of different backgrounds and ethnicities, so should we. You know who wasn't racist? Jesus. On multiple occasions, Jesus reached out to and spoke highly of people of different ethnicities. In John chapter 4, whereas many Jews would avoid the region of Samaria, Jesus passed through Samaria, even taking the time to talk to a woman there and showing her dignity by doing so. Jesus told a parable about a good Samaritan to Jewish listeners who looked down on Samaritans. Jesus also once took a trip outside the borders of Israel to the area of Tyre and Sidon, and he met a woman there, and he said that that woman had more faith than anybody he had ever met in Israel. Jesus also had positive interactions with Roman centurions and spoke highly of them. So Jesus was not a racist. He was not a nationalist. Neither should we be those things. Jonah was prejudiced. Jesus was not. Don't be Jonah. Okay, listen, you know what else Jonah was? He was also a whiner. He was a whiner. Throughout the story, Jonah spends a lot of time whining and feeling sorry for himself. God tells Jonah to do something, and he kind of mopes around and begrudgingly does it. He whines, he complains a lot. In chapter 4, verse 3, God actually asked, or Jonah asked God to kill him because he was so upset about God offering mercy to the Ninevites. Friends, listen, if God calls you to do something, don't complain about it. Just do it. Like Abraham. Do you remember Abraham? God called him to go up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice his son. Abraham didn't understand it, but in spite of his not understanding this, it says in the next verse that Abraham arose early and did what God called him to do and set off for Mount Moriah with his son. 
But even more important than being like Abraham, be like Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus was led like a sheep to the slaughter. He didn't even open his mouth. He didn't whine. He didn't complain. He did what the Father told him to do. Listen, in the world today, there is a pandemic of whininess, right? There's a pandemic of Jonah-esque crybabies who know what God wants them to do, but they're wasting a ton of time. They're wasting a ton of energy just complaining and focusing on how they feel rather than on what God has called them to do. Be like Abraham. Be like Jesus. Don't be like Jonah. Jonah was a whiner. Don't be that guy. Finally, Jonah was angry at God. Here in this chapter, Jonah is really angry at God. He's angry that God would show mercy to Nineveh. He's angry that God took away this plant that was giving him shade. Isn't it funny how we can so quickly and easily become entitled, isn't it? Right, something that not even a long time ago you didn't even know existed. Once you get it, uh, pretty soon you feel like God owes it to you. Friends, you, you need to know this. God doesn't owe you anything. Everything you have is a gift, and that gift, it means it's by grace. The essence of grace is that it is undeserved. You will live a much happier life if you begin to understand that God owes you absolutely nothing, and therefore, when something good happens, it's the grace of God alone. He's not obligated to give you anything. Every breath in your lungs, every day you wake up, none of it is a given. It's all by grace. So learn to be thankful rather than entitled. You know who, who wasn't entitled? It reminds me of Job. Job was a man who had a lot and he lost it all in one day. And yet it says that Job, in spite of everything, he, he lost everything and yet he did not curse God. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus, on the night he was crucified, he spent the whole night in prayer and fellowship with God. He never got angry at God in spite of all the pain and injustice he suffered in his life. Be like Job. Be like Jesus. Don't be like Jonah. Jonah was angry at God. Don't be that guy. Jonah's a good example for us of what not to do and what not to be. Listen, in a world where you can be anything, don't be a racist Don't be a whiner and don't be entitled and don't be angry at God. Instead, follow the good examples in the Bible and be kind to all people, obey God without hesitation or complaint and understand that everything good in your life is a gift of God's grace. Amen? All right. Make Israel great again. Wow. Okay. Well, as we approach the fourth chapter of Jonah this afternoon, we come to a passage of scripture that gives us a fascinating glimpse into the gospel and into the very mission of Christ. Charles Feinberg calls Jonah the greatest missionary book in the Old Testament. But at first glance, it seems like an odd title when you give it a cursory once over. Jonah, the one missionary in the Bible who turns and runs in the opposite direction of the people God was calling him to reach. No matter what mission organization you're familiar with, that is generally a bad strategy to run the opposite direction. And yet, God's plan for Nineveh was one man. Jonah 4.11 says, Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which There are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Notice with me that God calls Nineveh a great city. 
the truth is, when we study the Assyrian Empire, of which Nineveh was the capital, we find that the city and the culture of the people that comprise the city, well, they're not that great. Nineveh was wretched. It was deplorable. It was actually a wonder that God wanted to have any grace towards Nineveh. In Nahum chapter 3, you can jot this down and look at it later. Nahum 3, 1 through 4. Listen to this indictment. It says, The city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. Wow. Nineveh is across the river from the modern-day city of Mosul, Iraq. And according to one historian, the ground of Nineveh, the ground of Assyria, was stained red from the blood of the savage Assyrians. They actually killed people by ripping the skin off the victim, and they'd leave them in the sun to die. They even would build pillars, it was noted, uh, of human heads. The Assyrians had come and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and Nineveh was the capital city, boasting walls as high as 100 feet tall and eight miles long. Just imagine God telling the Jew during World War II to go and preach the good news to Berlin. How could God call Nineveh a great city? And yet he does. Four times in the book of Jonah, God uses this phrase. Now you might say, well, maybe that's because it was large, and certainly it was. It would take three days for you to traverse through the city of Nineveh on foot. But notice that what God says there in chapter 4 is, Should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Note with me that God was concerned for Nineveh. Now, you might wonder, well, who are the 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? By the way, that does not mean people who are ambidextrous or who have short-term memory loss and can't remember uh, which hand to write with. Uh, Who doesn't know their right hand from their left? You could argue children, kids. This may be a reference to children. And if it is, that means Nineveh would boast well over 600,000 people. God was concerned as he looked at God's enemies and saw lost, violent, wicked people and even noticed their children and even more than that, even noticed their cattle. Notice with me, though, that Jonah, in comparison, wasn't concerned about anyone but himself. He was fuming hot because people didn't get what they deserved. But did he? Jonah's prayer throughout the book that we've recorded mirrors Exodus 34 and Joel 2.13 as he describes the nature of God being gracious and merciful, God being slow to anger and abounding in love, the one who relents from doing harm. And all of those attributes of God are true, yet Jonah knew that this pity from God that was born out of the very nature of God towards repentance and towards faith, that could be experienced. God's nature could actually be experienced by, yes, even the savage Assyrians. Jonah understood who God was, yet he didn't want others to experience the goodness of God. What was it that displeased Jonah? It wasn't the wrath of God, 
It was the kindness of God. What displeased Jonah was the very nature of God himself. And because God was true to who he was, Jonah knew if the people repent, God would relent. If the people turn toward Yahweh, well, then God would turn towards them in compassion. God's question to Jonah in chapter four, it's right in front of you, is, is it right for you to be angry? And we know what the implied answer is, don't we? We know the answer is no. Uh, Now, we are never commanded anywhere in scripture to try to be a better Jonah. That's because Jonah himself seemed to be the perfect prophet to represent Israel as a nation. He was zealously nationalistic. He was uncaring toward the Gentiles. He was smug, self-righteous, and he was curved inward. Jonah reveals to each of us our sinful propensity to be concerned about ourselves instead of the redemptive mission of God. But let me leave you with some hope this afternoon. We don't need to improve on Jonah. There's a true and better Jonah, Jesus Christ. Think about how the two are contrasted. The plan for Nineveh was one man. The plan for salvation of the world was also one man. Jonah ran from God because he knew God would remove the deserved wrath from the Ninevites if they received the message of redemption with repentant hearts. Yet Christ, we know he ran to the Father. His face set like a flint towards the cross. He knew that the Father would place upon himself the wrath he didn't deserve, and yet he bore it in the place of those who did. We see two prophets asleep in the boat, but look at the different responses. Jonah had been given authority to go and proclaim God's power, but what does he do? He decides to reject it, and he was overcome by the wind and the waves. Jesus, in contrast, he arises from his slumber on the boat with authority, to proclaim God's power over the wind and the waves. See, what was displeasing to Jonah about his own message was the very thing that motivated the message of Jesus. Jonah didn't appreciate the nature of God towards sinners, whereas Jesus was in very nature God. Jonah knew that by mediating for the Assyrians, God would have compassion. And Jesus knew that by dying in our place and being our mediator, the one mediator between man and God, that God would also relent and have compassion even while you and I were yet sinners. Jonah was sent to a hostile people, the enemies of the people of God, and Jesus likewise came to a hostile people, not only the Jews, but to mankind, of which the scriptures declare in Ephesians 2, are by nature children of wrath. Jonah looked out at the city of Nineveh and he ground his teeth because he wanted them to incur the wrath of God, even while he sat comfortably under the shade of the plant. But Jesus, we know, looked out at the city of Jerusalem and he wept, desiring to spare them from the wrath of God and instead gathering their children together like a hen gathers her chicks. You and I aren't to look at this story and say, let me improve upon Jonah. Or to say, like some preachers have said, don't be that guy. Because the reality is, you and I are not to be Jonah. Uh, If you and I try to be a better missionary than Jonah, the reality is, if we're honest, we're going to fail in the same ways that he did. 
We shouldn't identify with Jonah in the story. If anything, the guy that you already are is Nineveh. You see, we need the prophet to come and reveal the nature of God to us, mediating the mercies of God, even as he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. This prophet, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jonah may have been thrown overboard during the tempest because of his own folly, but in the midst of the trial and crucifixion, the prophet Jesus endured the shedding of his blood, not for himself, but for you and for me. And we know three days dead, Jonah arose, so to speak, from the belly of the fish to preach the good news. And we, as Christians, hold as our living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who on the third day conquered sin and death and rose again victoriously from the grave. So what is our response to these things? It's not to try in our own strength to improve upon Jonah's missionary mistake. No, friends, it's to give God all the glory for the wondrous gift of mercy he's given us in the person and work of his dear son, Jesus Christ. He's the true and better Jonah. He has come to preach good news even to Ninevites like you and to me. All glory be to God. Amen? Yeah, stay up here. Okay, so you heard those two sermons. Pilgrim got a few more claps than I did, but I'm just going to guess that was because you guys by that time figured out that it was a good thing to clap. You guys didn't know that, I guess, before mine. I got a clap from David. Pilgrim took a shot at my sermon during his sermon, which is not cool. But uh, all right, guys, so tell me, did you notice any difference between those two approaches to the same text? What I'd like you to do, just raise your hand. I'll call on you, shout it out from where you are, and then I'll repeat what you say for the sake of those listening online. So what were some differences between what Pilgrim presented and what I presented? So yeah, Shane says that mine was more Jonah-centered, Pilgrim's was more Christ-centered. Pete, you got one for us? Okay. Okay, Pete's going to have a microphone. Cool, right here. Uh, so I noticed that yours is like politically driven and kind of like kind of divisive as well. Uh-huh. But uh, Pilgrim's is more like encouraging and supportive, inspiring hope, and so that we have hope in Jesus instead of um, like condemning Jonah or ourselves instead of, you know, so. Yeah, that's the best way I can explain it. Okay, but I showed you the right way to be by pointing you to Jesus. So what was wrong with what I did? You kind of were condescending. <laughs> you know, you... Yeah, you put the responsibility on it. Oh, okay. Okay, there's a good answer, too. Okay. Oh, but, hey, I want to pu- push back against this first one. You said that his was Christ-centered, mine was Jonah-centered, but I talked about Jesus a lot. So you're saying that Pilgrim said that Jesus is the answer for us. I said that Jesus is the answer for us in how to be. When I listened to you, I, I didn't want to be racist, because Jesus isn't racist, and I didn't want to be, um, I forgot the second one, but... Whiner. Yeah, and whininess, right? So I didn't want to be whiny anymore after listening to you. Yeah, that's good. I saw somebody nodding their head when I said that one. They, they agreed. All right, Chris, you had something Put to say. Put your hands up, and then I'll come Chris, to you. in the hat back there, Chris got something to say. Whereas pilgrims, I mean, from the opener, you go to the last verse and point the picture of, of grace and, and, and the whole focus being what God accomplished in Christ for us versus 
if we are just better, we won't whine or be racist like Jonah. And you, dude, you just put Jonah on blast as well, <laughs> Nick. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, we got some more over here. Where? Nathan's got one here. We've got one back here. here let me. Yeah, mine was lifestyle advice. Yeah, and Pilgrims is pointing people to Jesus as the person to change their life. Let's go over here. I would say your prioritization, like you spent a lot of time, like you did mention Jesus, but like the majority of the time was focused on um, Jonah and his mistakes. And I think the the main message is like the message of hope. And, you know, God, uh, Jesus pointed out um, the miracle of Jonah will be my coming. And that's something that he did in his message is, you know, that's the main point. Okay, so in a way, I kind of use Jesus as a prop in saying, here's maybe another way. I kind of contrast him with Jonah, but mine was about Jonah. But here's what I would say to you. Wasn't the text from the book of Jonah? I mean, shouldn't I be teaching about Jonah? Just a thought. Let's go. Uh, yeah, Pilgrim used, he taught from the text of Jonah, brought out the types and shadows of Christ and brought it into the new covenant a little bit better than, than what you did where you, you had a ton of application and threw kind of some Christ at the end. And he was saying, this whole thing points to Christ. This does. In fact, we can go there. It points to Christ. Here it points to Christ. And he just really kind of brought the fact that Christ is the central point. So I just kind of tossed a little Jesus in there for, for good measure. You had a good sermon. Your sermon was good. No, I didn't. Come <laughs> on. All right. I got to let you guys in on something. Like the whole point of this exercise uh, was that I was intentionally preaching a bad sermon. That was how I preached was, uh, was intended to be a model of how not to preach. And you might remember the title, and I could tell that somebody over here picked up on the title of this module, is Christ-Centered Preaching, right? Which means not just throwing a little Jesus in there for good measure. But, but that does bring up a good question that our sister over here asked, which is, if we're teaching the book of Jonah, then should we be teaching about Jesus? That's, that's an important question. Do we have one more, Peter? Are we good? We're good. Okay. Well, Pilgrim, thank you. Let's give Pilgrim a hand. You did a great job. All right. And yeah, so just to let you know, that, that's an exercise we do uh, on purpose to show you a difference, two different ways of preaching, two different emphases. His was what we would call a Christ-centered message, whereas mine is what you might call a man-centered message, right? It was all about you. And, and I think there was one really important point that uh, Pilgrim himself said during the end of that sermon, and that is this. He, he made, think about which position he put you as the listener in. I put you in the position of Jonah, don't be like Jonah, rather you be like this person. But what did Pilgrim say? He said, you know who you're like? You're like the people of Nineveh who need saving, and you need a savior. Oh my gosh, that's it right there. Okay, so important. So again, this is one of our core modules, and our point here is this, that Christ-centered preaching always puts Jesus at the center of the message. And this is not only theologically correct, as I hope to show you over the next few minutes, and it is also theologically necessary that we preach in this way, but it is also 
practically useful. It is what your listeners need. In fact, it is what you, for your own heart, desperately needs. So what is Christ-centered preaching, and how does it differ from non-Christ-centered preaching? Now, earlier this morning, or this afternoon, David Guzik talked to us about what expository Bible preaching and teaching is. And in this module, we're going to take that same step one, one step further. And here's what we're going to say. In order for a message to be truly expository, it must also be Christ-centered or gospel-centered. And I'm going to show you why. As David explained earlier, the point of expository preaching is to expose the meaning of the text. But listen, what is the meaning of the Bible? Is the Bible just a, a collection of stories that reveal random things about God? No, the Bible is something much better than that. The Bible itself tells a story. And the story it tells is the story of our fallenness and Jesus' work to redeem us. To put it simply, the Bible is a book about Jesus. Think about that. The Bible is a book about Jesus. Now, what does that mean then for the context of every passage in the Bible? Since the Bible is a book about Jesus, that means that in order to accurately and faithfully teach every individual passage in the Bible, we must show how each of those passages ultimately points to Jesus and the salvation that he brings. Here's a thesis statement that you can find in your workbooks for this module on Christ-centered preaching. Faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. I want you to write that down, circle it in your books. It's very important. Faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is speaking to his opponents. Who were his opponents? They were Bible-reading and yet self-righteous Pharisees. And here's what Jesus says to those Bible-reading yet self-righteous Pharisees. You search the Scriptures because you believe that in them you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. What Jesus was telling the Pharisees is that they had been reading the Bible, but they had been reading it incorrectly, and therefore they had been coming to the wrong conclusions about it because they had failed to realize the one key factor, the one key thing. Although they knew what the Scriptures said, they failed to realize what the Scriptures were all about. The Scriptures, Jesus said, all testify of him. Like a witness in a courtroom giving her testimony, she points her finger and she says, that's the man. It was him. In the same way Jesus says the Scriptures point their finger at me. They testify of me and talk about me. Later on in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, we read about how on the day of his resurrection, Jesus met with some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it says, Luke 24 verse 45, that he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. You see, up until that point, they had read the scriptures and yet failed to understand what they were all about. And it says there in Luke 24, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later on, Jesus met with the rest of his disciples, and it says this. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you when I was with you 
that everything written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. When Jesus opened the minds of his disciples to understand the scriptures, what he did, he took them through the entire Bible and he explained how all of it pointed to him. Every story, every symbol, all of it foreshadowed him and what he was going to do to save us. In the book of Acts chapter 8, there's a really interesting story. Philip the evangelist, maybe you remember, he is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert, to a deserted place on a road in the middle of nowhere. And as Philip is standing there on this road, an Ethiopian official is coming with his chariot and his caravan, coming down that very road on his way back home from Jerusalem to Ethiopia. And Philip prompted by the Holy Spirit, approaches this man's chariot, and he hears that this Ethiopian official is reading from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he happens to be reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And the man, he asks him, what are you reading? The man tells him, and then he says, I don't understand what I'm reading. Can you help me? And check out what it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with that very scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Notice it says, beginning with that very scripture. Now let me ask you a question. What if that man had been reading from a different passage of scripture? What if he wasn't reading from Isaiah chapter 53? What if he was reading from Isaiah chapter 35, which is about God judging the nations of the world? What if he had been reading from Isaiah chapter 36, which talks about a guy named Sennacherib invading Judah? Do you think Philip would have said, if the guy said, what are you reading? He said, oh, I'm reading Isaiah 36. And I, Philip would have said, oh, darn I was hoping you were reading something else. So I guess I'll just explain to you this thing about Sennacherib and then send you on your way and hopefully somebody else will come along and tell you about Jesus. No, no, no. You know what he would have done? No matter what passage that man would have been reading from, from any of the books of the Old Testament, you know what Philip would have done? Starting with that very passage, he would have told him the good news about Jesus. And doing so, listen, that is actually, according to Jesus there in Luke 24, that is actually the most faithful and true way to teach the scriptures, since all of scripture ultimately is a story about Jesus and ultimately serves to testify about Jesus. Listen, if all we do with a text from the Bible is what I did in my bad sermon here and just give moral instructions or some inspirational thoughts, although my thoughts weren't very inspirational, but if they had been, listen, even if we give inspirational thoughts, even if we give moral instructions, we have not done our job. We have not faithfully taught that passage yet because we haven't yet shown how that passage points to Jesus and the salvation that he brings. Charles Spurgeon tells a story about a young preacher who was preaching one day, and he noticed sitting in the congregation an older man who himself was an older preacher who had sat in on the congregation that day and was listening to a sermon. So after the service, the younger preacher went up and talked to the older preacher, and he said, what did you think of my sermon? And the older preacher told him, well, I thought it was a very poor sermon, actually. And the young preacher asked him, why did you think it was a poor sermon? And the old preacher said, it was a poor sermon because there was no Christ in the sermon. And the young preacher said, but there was no Christ in the text. It wasn't a text about Jesus. And the old preacher told him, but young man, listen, we, we are, don't you know that in every town and in every village in England, wherever it may be, there is always a road from that town or village that leads to London. 
The young man said, yes. He said, ah, in the same way, from every text in the scriptures, there is a road from that text that leads to the metropolis of the scriptures, which is Christ. And he said, my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road from this text that leads to Christ? And then when you preach the sermon, make sure that when you are done going up and down the high street of the text, right, the main road of the text, that you lead your people down the road from that text that leads to the great metropolis, which is Christ. And he said this, I have never found a text which does not have a road to Christ in it, but if I ever find one, then I will jump over hedge and bush in order to make a way to get to my master, for a sermon can have no good unless it has the savior, savor of Christ in it. Listen, this idea of a text having a main street or a high street, and then a road out of town that leads to the great metropolis. It's a great metaphor for teaching the Bible because it explains how to handle any given text from the Bible. Every text has a main street, if you will. It's the point of the text. It is what the text itself is teaching and talking about. Now, we don't want to rush through that, right? We don't want to speed through the center of town so we can get on the road out of town that leads to Jesus. We want to go through it, right? We want to really teach the text. We don't want to stray too far away from that main street. You can peek down some alleyways and some side streets. You can look at some interesting things and go on a few tangents, but don't do too much of that. Stick to the main street of the text. But once you've done that, once you've explored the main point of that text, make sure you lead your people down the road from that text that leads to Jesus. Show them how that text ultimately points to and is fulfilled by Jesus. Listen, the Bible is a book about Jesus. So therefore, when we read the Old Testament, we should expect to see a number of things. For example, we should expect to see predictive passages which talk about the Messiah who is to come, the hope of the coming Messiah. We should expect to see theophanies, right? Appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. We should expect to see institutions and offices and traditions like prophets, priests, and kings who foreshadow aspects of who the Messiah will be and what he will do when he comes. We will we'll see laws and rituals which point to God's perfection and our imperfection, which show us our need for a Savior, which help us to see our inability to save ourselves. There might also be acts of rescue or deliverance which point us to and foreshadow God's gracious rescue of sinners in Christ. And it is the job and the duty and the privilege of a Bible teacher. Look for these things that point to Jesus, to highlight them, to proclaim them to our listeners, and to declare the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. In, ver in uh, chat, or sorry, page 49 of your booklets, you'll find a page that lists several different tools or methods or ways of finding ways that any given passage points to Jesus. I encourage you to look through those, and we're going to do an exercise in just a few minutes. Uh, so, some of these are types. Some are foreshadowings. Some, interestingly, are contrasts, like we saw with Jonah. That is an example of a contrast where one man's failure points us to the true and greater person uh, of Jesus. 
Faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. That word shows is important. We are not trying to make Jesus the hero of every passage. We're not trying to twist or manipulate the stories in the Bible to make them talk about Jesus. Rather, if the Bible is a book about Jesus, and as Jesus said, all of Scripture speaks of him, our goal is to reveal that and help people to see it, how all of it points to and talks about Jesus. Listen, in churches all over the world, there are sermons being preached that could easily be cut and paste and preached on the stage of a faithful synagogue without anybody uh, having their feathers ruffled or chasing you out of town, right? You could go and you could preach it. I could have preached that message that I preached about Jonah in a synagogue, and they might not have liked what I had to say about Jesus, but they wouldn't have chased me out of town. What if I preached that message in a mosque, They like Jesus. They think of Jesus as a a prophet and a good example. What if I preach that message in a Mormon uh, temple or, or in a Jehovah's Witness gathering? You see, they talk about Jesus too. I talked about Jesus. They talk about Jesus. But the way they talk about Jesus is as a moral example and a wise man. They don't talk about him as the risen, the only risen Savior, the one who came to die as propitiation for our sins so that we could be saved through faith in him. See, we need to do that every time we open the scriptures. Let's leave the synagogue sermons to the synagogues and let us preach Christ. That's a good test for your sermon. Think about your last sermon you preached. Think about the sermon you have notes for that you're going to preach soon. Could you preach it in a synagogue without an uproar? If so, you're not done yet preparing that message. You haven't yet taken the road from that text, which leads to Jesus. But listen, this is not only an Old Testament hermeneutic, right? This isn't only a a thing we do with the Old Testament. We want to do this with the whole Bible. We want to do it consistently in both Testaments. We want to show Jesus to be the true hero of every passage. Did you know it is possible to teach the New Testament in a way that uses Jesus, like we talked about earlier, as a prop? right? As in a way that's not actually showing Jesus to be the hero of that passage. Did you know it's actually able, it's possible to teach a passage from the Gospels about the life of Jesus that does not point to who Jesus is as the hero of the story. A passage that actually puts you in the seat of the heroes, uh, of the hero, right? You use Jesus merely as a sidekick who helps you to try harder and do better so you can be the hero of your own story. Think about it like this. At the end of the day, there are really only two kinds of messages. There are Christ-centered messages and there are man-centered messages. If you preach uh, in a Christ-centered way, you know what will happen? Every message you preach, no matter what passage you preach from, you will always be preaching the gospel. Now listen, I used to think that the only people who needed to hear the gospel were people who hadn't yet put their faith in Jesus. But did you know that's not true? Did you know that believers need to hear the gospel? If you look at the New Testament epistles, look at the epistles of Paul, here's what you'll notice. The New Testament writers are constantly pointing their readers, who are primarily Christians, to the gospel. They're telling them who Jesus is and what he did. For example, Paul doesn't say, husbands, love your wives because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't say, be generous because it's what God says you should do. No, he uses the gospel as the model and the motivation for 
for doing these things. He says, be generous because God who was rich for your sake became poor so that you might receive the riches of God in him. Listen, it's not only non-Christians who need to hear the gospel, but Christians need to hear the gospel over and over and over again because the gospel message isn't only the way you become a Christian, it's also the motivation by which you grow as a Christian. I'll give you one final illustration to to illustrate the difference between these two ways of preaching. The story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. In the story, here's what happens. David goes to visit his brothers who are on the front line of the battle with the Philistines. He gets there. He hears that there's a giant named Goliath who's blaspheming God. He hears that Saul has promised a reward to anyone who can fight Goliath and kill him. And David agrees to fight him. He tells Saul, you know, I'm going to fight him. Saul says, put on my armor. David tries it on. It doesn't fit. So instead, he takes his sling, and he goes to fight Goliath. He risks his life, and he tells Goliath, God will defeat you. He slings a rock, kills Goliath. Israel's delivered. What is the application? Here are some common interpretations and applications. David was successful because he was faithful. Therefore, you should be faithful if you want to be successful. How many of you have heard that sermon? I've heard that sermon. Here's another one. David trusted God. You can also face the giant problems in your life and have victory if you trust God like David trusted God. Here's another one. David didn't wear Saul's armor. God made you special, so you be you. You won't succeed if you try to be somebody else, so you be you. Now think about it. What is the common theme in all of those applications? They're all about you, right? They they put you in the seat of the hero. You are the hero of that message. And God's role in that message is as a supporting character who serves to assist you as the hero to accomplish your goals if you will simply follow these principles. Now, listen, there are some degrees of truth in these things, though, right? Should we trust God? Of course. Should should we be faithful? Absolutely. Can God help you overcome giant problems in your life? Of course he can. But do you know what's also lacking in any of these messages? The good news of the gospel is lacking. There's nothing in that message that points to Jesus or inspires worship. It could be preached in a synagogue without any uproar whatsoever. There is nothing uniquely Christian about it. In fact, these messages, you know what they do? They inspire you to think of God as useful rather than as beautiful. When Jesus walked with his disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he explained all of the Bible to them and how it spoke of him. What do you think he said about David and Goliath? How do you think he showed that that story pointed to him? Well, let me show you. First of all, there's the nation of Israel and how they came about through the promises of God to bring a savior from this nation for the world. And now this nation is at risk of being exterminated because of this representative warfare where Goliath is challenging the people of Israel and whoever's champion wins the battle, their entire nation will be victorious. The other side will be wiped out. Whichever side loses will be defeated. So the people of Israel need a champion who can fight for them against this great enemy. And what's at stake isn't just their lives, but the destiny of their souls, the destiny of our souls as well, if they lose. But sadly, no champion can be found who can defeat the great enemy that they're facing. They're doomed. It's tragic. It's an absolutely hopeless situation. They need a champion who can fight for them and save them. And yet when David comes, 
The people mock him. They reject him because he doesn't fit their expectations of what a savior ought to look like and how a savior ought to fight for them. And yet David goes out, he fights, he defeats the giant. And because he is victorious, everyone who is on his side and in his camp is also victorious, even though they didn't do anything except for shaking their boots and wet their pants. They're still counted as victors and they get the spoils of victors. And in the same way, Jesus, the son of David, the one who has David's own blood flow through his veins was sent by God to be the champion you need because he was victorious over sin, Satan, and death. And if you are in his camp through faith in him, then there is nothing that you can do to earn it, but you will be counted as a victor in him. He defeated the enemy, not at risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And as a result of his victory, we no longer need to fear the enemies that arise in our lives because he has defeated the greatest enemies. Do you see the differences between those two approaches to that text? The first one says, here's what you need to do to try harder and do better. The second one says, here is what the Savior has done for you and how great the love of God is. He has met your greatest need. Look at how trustworthy and faithful he is. He's the hero, not you and not me. The first one causes you to focus on yourself. The second one causes you to focus on what has been done for you. The first one will lead to guilt or pride. Guilt if you're not succeeding and pride if you are succeeding. The, the second one leads to humility and appreciation because of what God has done for you in Christ. And you know what else? The second message speaks to both Christians and non-Christians. Sometimes people ask this. Should our messages be aimed at being evangelistic towards people who don't believe, or should they be aimed at building up people who already believe? But here's the thing. If you preach Christ-centered messages, you will preach the gospel every time, and it will speak to both believers and unbelievers, and it will cause both to want to look to and rely on and trust in Jesus, both for for salvation and for all of life. Showing how this text points to Jesus not only reflects the true nature of Scripture, but you know what it leads to? It leads to worship. Christ-centered preaching is not only faithful to the Scriptures, it is what you and your listeners need in order to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Well, for this next bit, what we're going to do is we've got some uh, group assignments for you. So as you're sitting in your groups, here's what we're going to do. We've got a slide for you on the screen with some passages. So what I'd like for each of your groups to do is to choose one of these passages, and I want you to go through it and look at this text. And, and there's kind of two ways you can go about it. One way would be to say, you're just going to explain it and show how this passage, is, this passage points to Jesus. So as a group, you're going to come up with a Christ-centered, very concise, like a summary of a Christ-centered way of preaching this text. If you want to have even more fun, what you could do is you could, you could come up with both kinds, right? You could come up with a, a bad way of approaching this, a man-centered, egocentric way, and a Christ-centered way to contrast the two. But either way, as a group together, talk about this. Do the work of expositing the text, you know, doing your inductive Bible study, but then turning the corner and showing how this could be preached in a way that points to Jesus, all right? And then in a few minutes, Pete and I will go around the room and we'll talk to you about it. Who, who had First Samuel chapter 9? This group and, okay, why don't you go to them? 
Oh, who's first, Samuel? Okay, who's your spokesman? Who's your okay? Somebody else had you. Why don't you stand up? Oh, sure. (laughs) All right. Yeah. So our group had First Samuel chapter nine, which is kind of about Saul uh, going off to look for some donkeys who had wandered away, and uh, meeting Samuel in uh, one of the towns, and it eventually led to him kind of starting down the path of being Israel's king. And uh, the parallel that we drew... First Samuel chapter 9. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, is that Saul is kind of an earthly or fallen, if you will, uh, example of the good shepherd, who is Jesus, uh, in that he went to look for the donkeys at his father's urging, and he had to bring a servant along, and they kind of went town to town and just kind of wandered and eventually wanted to turn back uh, just so that, like he said, so his dad wouldn't get worried about him. Um, but it's possible he was just tired of, like, looking for these donkeys. And um, that's in direct contrast to Jesus, who, like, pursues us of his own will uh, just because he loves us and loved us so much that he, like, died on the cross for us and we never have to leave his presence again. And, yeah, that's it. (laughs) Good. How about the second group? Second Samuel chapter 9. We also have 1 Samuel chapter 9. I mean, 1 Samuel chapter 9. Okay. Do you want to make any comments here, or you want to wait till these guys go? Let's put them together, and we'll... All right, so similar context. Um, We talked a little bit about how Israel at the time did, they were demanding a king. um, And previously it was ruled by a prophet. Um, And so Saul is a typology of Christ, even how it's laid out in 1 Samuel 9 about how there's kind of a genealogy. um, And like it talks about how he is from the smallest tribe of Benjamin. Jesus was came as a suffering servant. You know, he he be, he came low for us. Um, we didn't have one example. There was there was a couple. Um, Jesus is a true king. Saul, we see throughout his life, failed time and time again. Um, but Jesus didn't. He Jesus did what Saul couldn't do, which was save Israel essentially. Um, also just man's plan versus God's plan. Jesus came to accomplish his plan on the cross and he did it. Um, I'm not really saying that right, but, and then we even kind of went to the idea of Jesus being a typology of Melchizedek. He came as a priest and a king, um, which Saul couldn't do. Neither could any of the prophets before. So, No. Pete, before we move on, um, so you had mentioned one thing where you said that Saul was on his, or Jesus went on his own accord, but there's actually an interesting picture here of Jesus, isn't it, that he's sent by the Father in obedience to the Father. The Son goes to seek out us, and who are we in the story? If Jesus is, if, if Saul is a picture of Jesus, then where does that put us in the story? We're the donkeys, right? But isn't that a pretty good analogy of who we are, right? Like stubborn. We all like donkeys have gone astray, even worse than sheep, right? We're 
donkeys who need saving. Mm-hmm. The father sends the son to go save us the, donkeys. The king, the king goes after us. Oh, man. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. The better king. Yeah. That's all I got. <laughs> I think that's good. Okay. You got a clap. Better than I got from my sermon. <laughs> Okay, so Second Samuel chapter nine. These guys over here. Who's the spokesman right here? Now? All right, so we had Second Samuel chapter nine, and to give you a little bit of background about it, it's uh, David is now uh, king over Israel, and he is remembering a promise that he gave to Jonathan um, that he is going to care for his descendants. And so the way that this looks is David has remembered his promise and he's asking, is there anybody of the house of Saul that I can, can, that I can bless, that I can show kindness to? And he finds Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is one of Jonathan's sons who is lame in the legs because he was fallen on when Saul and Jonathan were killed. And so he reaches out to Mephibosheth, um, actually his servant, and offers the kindness and offers to have Mephibosheth eat his own table. And what we found from this and how it points to Christ is there is a promise made between David and Jonathan. This is a typology that shows the promise of God sending his son, the promise that God and Jesus had in his death on the cross for our sins. We are Mephibosheth. We benefit from this, from a promise made from a third party, from another party that we don't deserve. We're the one that's lame in the legs, and yet Christ in his love for us died on the cross for our sins. But just like Mephibosheth, in here he even calls himself a dead dog and says, why would you care about me, a dead dog? And we should have the same realization. And Mephibosheth has to make a choice. He can either accept the kindness and love from David to take care of him, even though he's not deserving, and has no claim to it, or he can reject it and choose to be stubborn and live on his own. And we are the same way where Christ died for our sins, and we have to make that choice as well, whether or not we will accept it, even when we don't deserve it, because we're a dead dog too. And yet Christ, in his love for us, knew that we were dead in our sins and chose to die on the cross for them. So we also had Second uh, Samuel chapter 9. And just to give you guys also some historical and cultural context, uh, whenever a new king was about to take over the throne, he would kill and take out any other uh, descendants or any other family members that was involved in the last kingdom. And so David, as he remembers Jonathan, his best friend's promise, he is seeking out for Mephibosheth. Now, we were able to take uh, the two different perspectives. We have the man version, which basically says that we are David and that we should be charitable, we should be kind, and that we should uh, just help out those who are less fortunate, just like David did. However, the Christ-centered version is, in fact, uh, quite the opposite. 
Just like how Mephibosheth was born into Saul's family, therefore condemned to death, we are also born into sin and condemned into death as well. However, Jesus, with his love, we did not deserve it, nor did we ask for it, pursued after us and continuously brings us to the table. We are Mephibosheth, we are lame, and we are, not, we are not able to bring ourselves to the table to eat with David. However, Jesus comes to us, he continuously, and he seeks us out, and he continuously brings us to the table and just intercedes on our behalf. Excellent. Great. Yeah, so let's talk about this second one, but it's similar, Nick, because both are stories about kings, right? Yep. So David's a king, and you have, if you remember, uh, the, the covenant that he had with Jonathan, remember? Jonathan saved his life in um, in 1 Samuel 20, yeah. and then they had a, that I will show loving kindness to you and to your descendants. Yep. So he's remembering. So the whole point is you have Mephibosheth who's fearing his life because in those days, right, they would the, the new dynasty would take the old dynasty and, and execute the former the family of the former dynasty. And he's the only one left. So he's hiding out, fearing his life. What what a great picture mm-hmm. of people that don't understand the thoughts they have wrong thoughts about the goodness of God they don't know who God is and they're living in fear Mm -hmm. because they don't know the gospel and that you have this king and his thoughts are just to show kindness Mm -hmm. and so Jesus who he's the son of David he just wants to find those who are crippled and fearful and bankrupt just to bless them and bring them into his house because of what he's done for us on the cross. He seats him at the table. And s- seats him at the table with, with, all, with the whole family. And being crippled, once he's seated at that table with, his, with David's family, they're all, they're all on the same level at the table, yep. at the communion. We're all at the same level at the cross. We're all equal at the cross. We all, when we take communion at the table, we're all we're all in the same condition, whether we're, you know, Absalom or Solomon, you know, and or Mephibosheth there in the palace. And Pete, I don't know, this might be going beyond the text of the scriptures. Well, I know you do that often. But if, uh, if, uh, if they were to go for a walk on the beach, how many sets of footprints do you think you'd see in the sand? Uh, no, no, I'm just, uh, that's, that's terrible. Good. That's good. No, that's bad. Come on. Little, that was bad. Little... S- Little hat full of sermon trickery. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's good. And I wanted, I I was thinking about the, you guys, second, uh, first Samuel chapter nine, the other king. So what were the people crying out for? A king, right? God wanted to be their king. You don't need a king. I am your king. But God granted them a king, and that king he granted them was a flawed king, right? And he lost his anointing because God desired obedience rather than sacrifice. And Jesus, ultimately fulfilling the office of king, gave his life as a sacrifice in obedience to the Father. Yeah. Come on. Let me get That's an right. amen on that. Amen. <laughs> amen. All right. You see what we're doing here. Okay. 
Let's go to um, Philippians 2, 14 through 18. Are these guys here? Yeah, so we had Philippians 4, no, 2. That's better. Um, and it's a, it's a passage that seems at first like a command, um, but is actually an evidence of an experience with Christ. Um, and so we see it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemishing in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so what we talked about with this was that this is not something that we are commanded to do in order to earn something, right? That's the whole testament is we couldn't earn it. Um, and so the fact that you're not doing this in order to become a child of God, I've heard it said before that dogs don't bark to become dogs. They bark because they are dogs. And so what we're called to as believers is we're supposed to be marked. We're supposed to look like lights in the world, that seeing our life, seeing the things we do, seeing, you know, doing things without grumbling or disputing, even if they're things that the world would say you could grumble for, um, are not things you do in order to earn the fact that you can be a child of God. It's something that happened because you had an experience with the child of God, right? And that we see Jesus in this, that only by the only blameless, innocent child of God without blemish sacrificing himself on the cross do we actually have the ability to do any of it, right? So even being compared to his lights as we're supposed to be image bearers of the world, right? And so if you're an image bearer, Christ says that we're going to be hated, right? Only because they hated him. And so don't worry, they don't hate you. They just hate Jesus and you remind them. And so we couldn't, we couldn't be a light, but Christ was the only light. Um, and by him, can we do all things? And when, when this is your perspective, right, even with like Paul, this is the other part we talked about, um, was, yeah, Paul has a life that reflects incredible transformation. Um, to, say, to go from killing Christians to proclaiming the gospel. And so he says in verse 17 that even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all, right? And that's not something that is said based on <laughs> trying to earn something. That's something based on experience that only by knowing the light of the world, right? His encounter on the road to Damascus, right? Like when you see the light, the first thing the light's going to do is show you how things actually are. And so how things actually are is this is what your life is. This is where you got yourself. This is why you need a savior. And this is what Christ did for you that you could never have done on your own. And so when that's your perspective, then now it's like, oh, well, I'm sacrificing these things. It hurts. But you rejoice in it because you realize the stakes of the world only from your experience with the light. And you can only be an image of something you've already seen or experienced on your own. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we also had uh, Philippians 2, 14 through 18. Um, we uh, go with the backstory of this is Philippia was a young church plant that was uh, tearing itself apart with disunity. So when he says, do all things without complaining and, grum- and disputing, he's actually talking to the church because they are grumbling and complaining about everything they're doing. They're tearing themselves apart. Um, but as humans, our nature is to grumble and complain. We cannot do it by ourselves. So it shows a need for Christ. It shows our need for somebody else that did go do something without grumbling and complaining. It shows Christ going to the cross without grumbling and complaining so that he could uh, be the sacrifice for us. Um, we are supposed to shine as lights, but it's not our light. Um, Christ is the light. 
He says that I am the light of the world, John 9. So we are trying to, we are showing Christ's light through us. Um, so that means we need to have Christ's transformation in us to show that light. All right. Philippians chapter 2. Interesting passage, you know, because whereas a lot of these other ones are narratives, this one is just one that tells you what to do. Like, don't grumble. Shine the light. And you remember the analogy there of traveling the main street or the high street of a city before you take the road from that city to that leads to the metropolis. And I think this is an important passage for that because it literally says, don't grumble and don't complain. And if that's what it says, then we should also say that if we're preaching the passage, right? So to faithfully preach the passage is to preach what it says. Now, like you guys were saying, I think you made a good point, is that the fact is that most of us know what we ought to do in many cases, and yet we have fallen short of that. And that is why we need someone who can not only save us from our sins, but can who then fill us with his spirit and empower us to live the new life in Christ. Yeah, and that would be a good, like, plain meaning way to look at it. Don't do all things without grumbling and complaining. So that'd be an observation. So, um, but then you ask the question, why? And then if you put it in the context, uh, the beginning of chapter 2 is Jesus left all the comforts of heaven and the privileges of heaven, became a man, humbled himself. And he says, so let this mind be in you. And you point it, you just zoom in on Jesus of what he gave up, what he did for us, went to the cross, humbled himself, became a servant, sacrificed, gave everything so that he could lift us up into his family and, 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 the, um, and let this bind be, be in you is like a shining light in the world, right? When, when we are impacted by what Christ does, so you could almost, if you had just had that text, you could go do a U-turn and go, how does this happen, right? There's plenty to complain about. And, but in light of what Christ has done for us, it's like an exhortation. It's a therefore when I read that. Therefore, what do we have to complain about, you know? And living life like that, Christ-centered, have this mind be in you, it's, it's, it's so impacting. Just even our actions are impacting. Amen. Okay. Numbers, the difficult, I don't know why we put this up every time, but we're going to take it off after oh. this week. No, it's, I, it's I, too I hard. Love, I love the numbers one. I think you're thinking of the Nehemiah one, Pete. The, the numbers one is awesome. Oh, no, Nehemiah, number, yeah. numbers one. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, numbers is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was talking Nehemiah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so ours was numbers 14, 1 through 12. And so basically, this, this uh, top chapter reference here is about Israel refusing to enter the land of Canaan. And um, if you look like a little bit before that, in the end of chapter 13, it talks about how they were uh, freaked out because there were giants in the land and they were like grasshoppers in their own sight. And so they, it, it goes through and they're talking about how it would be better if they just went back to Egypt and died um, rather than uh, go into the into Canaan, enter into Canaan. And so, um, and then it talks about in verse 8 how Joshua and Caleb went in and um, 
They pass through and spite out exceedingly good land. And if the Lord uh, delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give us land which flows with milk and honey. So we kind of did both. And we actually started out with the the man-centered way where they had an enemy uh, and they were freaked out and they needed to uh, have more faith to be delivered from their situation. Um, you know, more faith like Joshua and Caleb did, but the more Christ-centered way would be they they had an enemy and they were freaked out, but they, you know, needed to realize that God was the one who needed to rescue them, kind of like how Christ rescues us from sin. So we need to have abundant life in Christ is to come out of the desert into the promised land like the Israelites. Okay. This is... Uh we only have one group who did that yeah, that's right. for the rest of them. Yep. This is actually one of my favorite passages to kind of go through this exercise with. I think one of the reasons is because if you look at what happens uh, starting in verse 5, you just see the intercession of Moses and Aaron on behalf of the rebellious people. Right? Doesn't that point us to Jesus, the intercessor, who uh, you know is our advocate before the Father? Um always interceding for us. And so I think it's a beautiful thing. And then if, even if you go past, so this ends at verse 12, but if you look at the next part of it, you see then Moses interceding for the people and you see him say this in verse 19, pardon the iniquity of this people according to your, the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And, and then it gets into um, the, he, he talks about the character of God. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Anyway, I, I love it um, that he goes into all this. I, I just think it's an easy way to point to the gospel because you see this intercession that takes place just as Jesus intercedes for us. Yeah, and so Jesus has finished the work, and now he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's in constant intercession for us that we, he's praying for us, that we might enter the promised land. So the promised land is not something we're waiting for in heaven. Yes, that's the ultimate promised land. The promised land is the land we can live in because of the gospel right now, today. It's the land of milk and honey. And, um, you know, some commentators call the, the epistle of Ephesians the, you know, the Joshua of, of the New Testament, of how we can enter in to this new land, this new identity, this new way of life because of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus, our intercessor, is praying for us that we might enter in to the blessings of what has been purchased for us on the cross. Will that preach? I don't I know. preach. Okay. All right. Okay, this is who I was talking about. This is the same. I want to hear Nick's uh, Sennacherib Christ-centered sermon one day. So he didn't allude to it, but I, I can't wait to hear that one. But anyway, this this is a tough one. So you guys are very revered yeah. here today. So just before, I mean, this Nehemiah, the, the context is um, they were brought back from captivity. Um, now it's time to rebuild the city. Um and they had these enemies coming against them um, and trying to destroy their, their, what they're doing to rebuild. But starting in verse 15, one thing we noticed is 
right, right from the beginning, at least with the, with the verses that we were given, uh, it says, and it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, they, uh, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Uh, we noticed that the work happened after God had saved them. After God had destroyed their enemies, then they went to work. So we saw that that uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says we're saved by grace through faith. And verse 10 says that God had prepared works that we should walk in as a result. And so uh, that was one theme we got that you could spend a lot of time on. Another one, um, these guys were doing double duty as both construction workers and battle guys that were fighting. Um, and so we see themes of uh, the full armor of God here, that, that it's we fight in God's might, not our own. And uh, there's even a verse that says every one of these builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. Mm-hmm. And as we work, we walk in the things that Christ has already done for us, given us his righteousness, his mm-hmm. word, uh, his spirit. Um, and then uh, Brandon brought up a cool point. It says... Um, Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work. Uh, God's, God's fighting for us in Christ at the cross allows us to then go to work for him uh, and share the gospel. Uh, there are themes of the rapture here. Um, everyone was spread out at the sound of the trumpet they all came because God had fought for them and, and defeated the last enemy of death. So that would be a good place to end a sermon, very much so, especially uh, with the Christ-centered vibe. So those are... How about the part about the enemies um, that we took? The, what was the first verse? And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, yeah. that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Yeah. And you could even, like, teach that passage and what God was doing with the men and the trowel and the spear. I loved your armor of God thing. And because in Ephesians, Paul's talking about how we get that armor. It's through the gospel. It's, it's the righteousness in Christ salvation our mind the salvation we have through the cross and resurrection you know the, the you know you, you know the, the 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 sword is the word of god and how all that is accessed through the gospel and how how do we how our walls rebuilt in our lives through the gospel lives of broken marriages, lives of broken families, lives of our broken community. How do we rebuild the walls in our community? It, it's, it's much more than, you know, it, it is going and helping people in need. That's part of it, but it's, it's, the, it's what the gospel brings. So I think, I think that's cool. And then even just that first verse, you could say, Jesus went to the cross and, and he, the, and the enemy was confused. He thought when Jesus went in the tomb, that he had won the victory, but it was just, you know, but Sunday's coming, you know, and, um, and, and the plans of the enemy were, were just confused and, and thwarted because it was all part of God's plan. And remembering who Nehemiah is in this bigger story, right? Nehemiah is the one who leads the people back home after the exile, right? So there, there's this 
figure of Jesus or this type of Jesus, you know, the leader who will bring us out of the exile. He brings us back into the promised land, which we talked about in the previous one. And the idea here, yeah, he is the one who fights for us. That's in the text. He disarms the rulers and authorities, it says in Colossians chapter 2. And so we fight from this position of having victory in Christ. We know the end of the story. Yeah, that's good. Now, now Pete, I have a question for you. Okay. Okay. What if we were to make another thing, like a sword, right? It's kind of like the shape of a cross, right? So what if we talked about, oh, they've got to keep a sword on the side of themselves. It's the shape of a cross. Would that be a good way to tie in the gospel here? That's kind of like your other analogy. Let's start with that, whatever. See, it didn't make an impression. I already forgot what that analogy yeah. was. But, uh. but here, here's why I bring that up. Um, I ahead. bring that up. That's another Take example. Take us down those side roads off the it, It's, street. A, it's the example it. of me trying to show you what not to do, right? Because I, th- I think that a lot of times people think that this is what gospel-centered preaching is, or Christ-centered preaching, is sometimes you'll find some, like, thing that's not central to the story, that's not really pointing to the cross, right? And, and you'll turn, manipulate it, and twist it. And my point would be to say, that's not what we're trying to do here. We're trying to show what is really there, not trying to, by violence, force Jesus into every little detail of, of the text. I, I think that's a common critique or criticism mm-hmm. of Christ-centered preaching is that people say, oh, you're trying to make something there that's not actually there. And in some cases, it's true. Like if we were to say, oh, and the sword is in the shape of a cross, <laughs> therefore, right, like that would be going a step too far. Okay, we have one more, and then uh, we're gonna we're ahead of time, so we're gonna move straight into our next module with uh, Pastor Eric. But what's the last one? Luke four. Who had that? Um, we had Luke uh, four one through uh, fourteen. Um, this is talking about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan after uh, for the forty days and the three different temptations that came to it. Um, to Christ center this, we are. Uh, we get our power through Christ and what he's done on the cross. So now we have the strength through his action and his love that we are able to overcome the same fleshly, prideful temptations that Satan brought to Jesus in the desert, that we are going to be able to have that same strength to be able to resist those and overcome those same temptations and continue to walk in the faith. Jesus was tempted, but... You know, I think this is the story of all of our lives, isn't it? We've all been tempted. We've been tempted in our lives. And the thing is that when we were tempted, we did not stand the test. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? We need a Savior. We need someone to come who has been tempted in all ways as we have and yet without sin. And Jesus is that one. He's our great high priest, but he's, he's the one who became embodied like us. We've sinned in the flesh in this fallen world. And as a result, it will have implications for our souls for all of eternity. But Jesus became flesh and blood in order to be tempted and yet have victory. And because he was victorious in him, right, and through him, because in his flesh he died Mm -hmm. so that our souls could be saved. You see, it's almost like, almost like a total juxtaposition, right? We start out in flesh, sin in the flesh, and die spiritually forever. And Jesus, right, God is spirit. He becomes flesh, dies in the flesh so that we can have life forever in the mm-hmm. spirit. Yeah, and he passed the ultimate test in Gethsemane. 
and went to the cross because he said, not my will, but thy will. And we, all of us lack the will to do the right thing in the end. It's only through the cross. All of us, we mishandle power, right? And all those temptations in the wilderness, we mishandle flesh and comfort. All of us do. But Jesus, yeah, he was that great high priest that faced all those things. Well, thank you very much to Nick. Thanks to Pilgrim. Thanks to Pete. Uh, Thanks to every group leader and every participant whose voice you heard uh, just there. Well, I hope that inspires you. Um, there is, this is a, a major theme of the Expositors Collective. Uh, we want to encourage people in their personal study and public proclamation of God's Word, and specifically through the Christ-centered lens that you just heard about. In the show notes of this episode, there's going to be a lot of other resources of workshops, and interviews that we've done that will help you to understand even more the responsible ways that we can view all of scripture as Christian literature, pointing us towards the wonderful provision that God has made in Christ. Now, I hope that you're subscribed on YouTube, or Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen, because next Tuesday is an incredibly encouraging and enlightening and informative conversation with Dr. Gerald Bray. Uh, He speaks about the importance of pastoral preaching. He he talks about the, the role that interpretation and exposition come in our proclamation. And we talk about kind of a great role model to us in many ways, uh, the early church leader, John Chrysostom. I'm going to leave you with a clip, and I'll see you next Tuesday for the next episode of the Expositors Collective Podcast. I mean, I think one of the things I've discovered in preaching is that if I'm, if I'm called to preach in a place that, uh, you know, I don't normally preach in, which actually does happen quite a lot. Um, I tend to take well-known things. I, I'll preach on the Lord's Prayer or I'll preach on Psalm 23 or something like this because I assume that everyone in the congregate, well, maybe not everyone, but a lot of the people in the congregation will know those things. Yeah, it's a safe bet. Um, but probably they haven't heard any sermons on them, um, you know, from their regular pastor. Um, because the regular pastor might be preaching through Romans or Ephesians or doing whatever he's doing. But, you know, those those things, familiar uh, things, they may not have ever heard a sermon on. But I, working uh, uh, from now, it's coming from outside, uh, doing a sort of one-off thing, um, if I do that, if I preach, say, on the Lord's Prayer, I'm probably not interrupting the, the, the regular pastor or repeating what he's been saying. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm saying something that the congregation uh, is, knows, they're familiar with and, and they relate to, but have probably not reflected on, um, uh, you know, it, it, it very deeply. So you can go quite, you can go deeper, if you like, right. with strangers, um, that people you don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, um uh, you, you know, open open the word of God to them, um, 
and uh, and go into things because those particular things they are familiar with. Um, and so that's that, that's something I recommend to people. You know, if you if you, if you get asked to preach in a church where you, you don't normally go, um, you 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 can often get further by by saying by preaching on a text that everybody's familiar with. Right. I, I had to. I kind of chuckled as you said that you you would preach on a familiar passage like Psalm twenty three of the Lord's Prayer, um, mm. because I, I just preached on Psalm twenty three um, two weeks mm. ago, and I mm. did so with like fear and trembling because I was thinking like, oh, Psalm 23, this is everyone's favorite. You know, I have to, mm-hmm. to bring something forward that, that no one's ever said or heard about Psalm 23 before. And my wife gave me a good talking to, and she says, you know, Mike, you just got to read the words, you know, like, and just like mm-hmm. press home those central truths. And, and that's what God's people need to hear. They don't need something new or, or novel um, from this yeah. well-loved passage. And, uh, and she's right. She's often right. And, um, and then also too, I was reflecting or thinking about, you know, when's the last time my church has heard a sermon on Psalm 23. And I was thinking, yeah, exactly. you know, it's like, well, I did it at that funeral about four or five years ago and not even everybody was there at that funeral. So there's this assumption, oh, everybody knows this or everyone's heard this, but it's like, well, actually about a portion of my congregation heard it five years ago. <laughs> Therefore, yeah. it's okay to do it again. And, you know, they're well-beloved Psalms for a reason. And so, anyway, I kind of... Well, that's right. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Psalm 23 and you mentioned the funeral. I mean, one of the lines in Psalm 23 is, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Um, that particular line uh, needs to be brought out. Yeah, you know, because we're always walking—well, not always, but very often—walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah. What is this? Are you facing this in your own life? And that's an aspect of that psalm which uh, is not usually stressed. Um, it, you know, it's, it's kind of elided over, and it's there, but you know, you pass on, um, and and not to fear evil. You know, to to uh, to face the future with confidence and. Um, and a lot of people, especially now, I mean, especially with COVID and yeah. all that, um, I mean, it's very relevant.